As you know, some of us traveled to Thailand over the last few weeks. The main reason being to join in the <coughs> annual gathering of senior monks on Lumpur Cha's birth date, 17th of June for a meeting, although the meeting is held on the 16th of June. As usual, the meeting was held in Wapapong and conducted in harmony. I believe there were 617 monks present, uh, the majority of them were terrors, abbots or senior monks, and different issues were discussed as usual, aspects of the Vinaya, aspects of administration, the process of running monasteries, teaching Sangha, teaching laity. Also, discussion of quite natural incidents, issues that occur, such as the arrangement of funerals for senior monks, members of Ajahn. Charles Sangha, who passed away over the last year. Discussion about the care of senior monks who are sick, currently sick or elderly, and need, uh, maybe need um, support either materially or um, from other more junior healthy monks, maybe they need some help or just discussing their condition and what treatment they're receiving and so on. So you might say nothing was uh, discussed that was un unexpected. Many of the types of discussion that took place were the sort of things that happen every year in a large Sangha. But it, they were conducted in harmony and with a lot of goodwill, respect, particularly for the elders. And the meeting always finishes with a ceremony of uh, the whole Sangha asking forgiveness from maybe uh, six or eight of the most senior elderly terrors in a ceremony, asking forgiveness ceremony. The majority of the monks in the meeting probably just listen and don't participate with offering their views, but there is the opportunity to speak up if a person, if a monk has a particular opinion or some knowledge on an issue, or occasionally 
a monk is called upon to speak, to give information. <coughs> that doesn't mean to say just because many monks don't speak that it's they don't have a role to play. Probably many monks don't feel they have something particular to say, they are happy just to listen. Uh, and there is a system, a method where if a monk has an issue to raise or an opinion to voice, then that can be done. They often have preparatory meetings in the preceding days uh, where issues are discussed before they come to the larger Sangha to help uh, filter what's important and prioritize the, the discussions and um, gather further information if that's needed before a, a particular point is discussed in the larger Sangha. And in those preparatory meetings there's much more freedom for monks to speak and talk and that saves a lot of perhaps wasted energy or energy that's too diverse when the larger monk, larger group of monks come together. For me these occasions are always reminiscent of um, that passage in the story in the life of the Buddha when the monks at Kosambi were in disharmony and arguing. The Buddha went across to see Venerable Anuruddha, who was staying in another monastery nearby. I think the Buddha was kind of tired of the arguing monks who wouldn't listen to reason and wouldn't stop uh, their arguments and debates over small points of Vinaya. So the Buddha went across to see Venerable Anuruddha and another group of monks and he arrived there and they say the atmosphere was very peaceful. And the Buddha asked why the monastery appeared so peaceful and things seemed to be going very well for the Sangha. And they explained how they lived together in harmony. They always thought of each other with loving-kindness with metta and express that in action as well as thought and described how you know, after Bindabhata, after arms round, the first monk who comes back sets up the eating hall, puts out the water, lays out the sitting mats. The last one to leave makes sure things are cleaned up properly whatever chore needs to be done around the monastery the monks are willing to do it they don't need to be told when they see that something needs to be done they do it and very little instruction has to be given maybe just a finger pointing to an empty water jar that needs to be full filled is enough to um, uh, in, initiate uh, the action 
So they said they live together without too much discussion. What needs to be done gets done with a heart of kindness. So the monks are not grumbling or complaining or pushing the work to others or trying to get away with as little as possible. They're willing to help each other because they see the value of living in harmony with kindness in their hearts because this is the best foundation for developing meditation, developing samadhi and developing panya. And uh, what Nongbapong in particular always seemed to have that flavor from the very first time I went there and still through till this current time. It's a place where monks see the value of helping out, being kind and respectful to each other, and doing whatever job needs to be done, often without a lot of discussion. Just get on and do it, because it's helpful to everyone. And then the monastery has a quiet, composed atmosphere, so when you meditate, there's not a lot of distraction or mental proliferation going on in your mind because of this good foundation. And living together as monks, whether we're just one or two in a small hermitage or many monks in a larger monastery, you know, these principles remain the same. We have to found our practice on practice of metta, renunciation, contentment, respect. These kind of qualities nourish our mind and they nourish the community as a whole. And they're supportive for the arising of higher dhammas, which we are seeking. It's something you don't always find in lay communities. Even the family unit is often beset with um, differences of opinion, so there's often family arguments, rivalries, jealousies, different views and opinions on uh, the way things should be done. And of course that flows out into the world. We have the differences of people's different political persuasions, different views and opinions, how society should be run, the competition of earning a living, competing with each other. There's a lot of uh, conflict and selfishness in the, in the world. When we come into the monastery, we're learning to set that aside and promote metta and these more wholesome, skillful dhammas. Sometimes it comes easily, sometimes it doesn't. But the longer you live in Sangha, the more you appreciate the value of these qualities. As bhikkhus, we don't, often we don't have much to offer materially to each other or to lay people because we don't have an income. 
we don't own much. But we can practice dharma in different ways, by practicing acts of service, helping out, offering skills, offering knowledge, occasionally offering things, maybe personal possessions that we don't need, or even if we need, maybe someone else has a need, we share with someone else. We can still practice dharma in different ways as bhikkhus. We also practice a more difficult dana, the abhaya dana, the dana, the giving of forgiveness. Learning to live together without grudges, without holding on to ill will directed towards other fellow monastics. That's a more profound kind of giving that we all develop, we have to develop, living in a community. And again, it's the forerunner of the peaceful mind, the mind of samadhi, when you learn to set aside ill will. It's in our own interest to practice kindness, forgiveness, letting go, uh, in our interpersonal relations, say, between monks in one monastery, or between monks between in different monasteries. It's in our own interest to practice that for peace of mind in the here and now, letting go of bad feeling, ill will that's come up in the past through misunderstandings or through particular incidents that may have happened. In what Nongbapong you see over the years, such a large sangha, hundreds of monks. It's natural that over time there may be some monks who fall out over small reasons, like in Kosambi, over some very minor point of Vinaya, or maybe for deeper reasons, jealousies, rivalries over fame and fortune, influence and so on. It does happen. But at the same time, you also see how well the Sangha heals those kind of differences and personal conflicts that may have arisen. And monks who at one time or other may have been angry or unhappy with each other, over the years completely let it go and can still sit down together harmoniously and not argue and not be against each other. Of course, everybody has their different personalities and styles, but you see there's something very beautiful when large numbers of people who've lived together in association, maybe for many, many years, can still do it, can still meet together in harmony. That's because they have a bayadana established in their heart. They know how to forgive, how to let go. was perhaps part of Lumpur Cha's legacy, how he would take in people who often maybe didn't seem like <clears throat> they were ready or suitable for monastic training. 
but he seemed to be able to bring the best out in many people because of his own well-developed metta and then his wisdom in teaching and being a good example. So many different kinds of people came to ordain, train with him. Perhaps he had some skill in just seeing the potential in each person and, and how to draw that potential out through the practice. Very skilled at that and obviously wasn't bound by um, bias or prejudice in his own mind. So he could really see through to what what would help each individual in their practice. He's very good at that. We heard the story in the um, biography of Ajahn Chah the other day how there was one monk whose behavior was a bit eccentric. And a lot of the other monks in the monastery <clears throat> didn't particularly like him and were always looking for a chance to censure or admonish him. Ajahn Chah never did that. So that when Ajahn Chah was out of the monastery one time, they did have a group meeting, admonish him and even ask him to leave Wapapong. Ajahn Chah, when he came back, basically told the Sangha they'd got it wrong and didn't follow through with what they were proposing. And that monk managed to stay in the robes and practice and be a, an asset to the Sangha right to the end of his life. He's passed away now. Maybe that just points out Lumpur Chah's deeper, slightly deeper wisdom and metta. It's a way of practice, you know, to look for the good in oneself and try and bring it out in the practice. <clears throat> and then look for the good in others. In Thailand they have um, a name, Galikini, which is always associated with misfortune, bad luck. And they often give this name to somebody in, in, so you have somebody in your life who you feel is always bringing you trouble, bad luck, and you call them Garlikini. It actually comes from the story about Anattapindaka, the wealthy merchant in the time of the Buddha who had one friend called Garlikini, the unlucky one, bad luck. And nobody liked this man. So he could never get work, could never earn money, so he was always poor, and his manner was a bit rough. So nobody liked him. But Anattapindika had known him since they were both children, and had, you might say, a soft spot for him, or always had some metta for him, and always tried to see through the perception of this man being kind of a rough beggar with nothing to offer to the world, which is the way most people perceived him. Tried to see through that, to see the good in him. So eventually he actually gave him a job looking after one of his houses, because he had so many, so much wealth. He had a number of different houses. They made him the caretaker of one. And all his relatives 
argued, disagreed with this decision. They said, this man is just trouble, he's bad luck. Don't keep him. We don't want him here. But, and Natapindika overruled him, overruled them, and <clears throat> was proven correct later on one time when everyone left to travel and this house was going to be empty. Even Garlikini was going to leave it for a while. And some thieves heard about this, so they prepared to storm the house and remove all the valuables while it was empty. But they came a day early. Garlikini hadn't left yet. And he was inside the house at night, and he heard the thieves outside preparing to come in. So he panicked, but he thought, mm, what can I do? Well, he just made it seem as though there were a lot of people still in the house and turned on or lit many candles, many lanterns and made a lot of noise to the point where the thieves gave up their plan. They thought there must be still too many people around. They left and this news eventually got back to everybody that Garlikini's smart, quick-thinking action saved the house and the possessions. So people's perceptions changed. They realized mm, maybe on the outside he's, he looks like a loser, a troublemaker, but on the inside he's actually smart and he did us a, a good favor. So people started to warm towards him. The practice of metta is like that. You're breaking down some of your own perceptions about others that lead to ill will and you're looking for the good in others, the potential for good, <clears throat> not to blind yourself to their faults or weaknesses, <clears throat> but to not let that color your thinking. You're training your mind, directing your mind to the theme of goodwill over and over again, regularly. And this can be a precursor to the development of samadhi. When there's samadhi in the mind, the mind is calm. Beyond the hindrances, there'll be no ill will there. If you're still prone to ill will, samadhi is not arising. The ill will is only one of the hindrances, but it's a very clear definition of whether the hindrances are there or not. If there's ill will, there's a hindrance. If it's not there, then there's no hindrance. It's something we have to keep working on, keep nourishing, keep developing uh, through our <clears throat> body, speech and mind as we live in the monastery. It just helps the mind to feel more relaxed, more calm within itself. And we direct, direct our metta towards ourselves, towards others. On a regular basis, we display it through our actions our speech, the way we look at each other, think about each other. You know, it's a, it's a, a work in progress, but it's a theme you have to keep coming back to. It's one of those araka kamatanas, one of those meditation objects to preserve, to keep developing regularly through your monastic life.
as we do this then gives the mind the opportunity to settle down more easily it's more calm, more relaxed, brighter within itself <clears throat> the more metta is developed and then we can turn our attention inwards without getting caught up so much in what other people are doing and what we think about them <clears throat> we develop the general perception and feeling of metta on a regular basis it cuts through a lot of our <clears throat> opinions and views about things or at least softens them <clears throat> Lumpur Cha used to talk about how you know, when you come into the monastery the main problem you face is your accumulated opinions, views the conceit of I am or who I think I am and our views about everything what is right, what is wrong good and bad and that conditioning process comes with us it's ditti, it's mana we bring it into the monastery and then it will display itself even within the monastery through our, our practice maybe our views on the Vinaya what is right, what is wrong looking at other people, judging them who's practicing properly comes out with our conceit over knowledge you notice the more <clears throat> higher dhammas we discuss and start to talk about the more refined states of consciousness or talk about levels of insight or attainments of magapala talk about the more refined dhamma the more the opportunity for conceit comes out comes up our, our particular interpretation of a point of Dhamma from the suttas or a point of Vinaya you know, when we're not very reflective on our own attachment to our own views and opinions and the conceit of I am then you know, the higher the Dhamma often the, the lower the mind goes and we lose our metta and we just get caught in our, our particular viewpoint and our conceit, our ego gets bound up with it so just like the monks of Kosambi even the smallest, most minor point can become a great cause of division who's right, who's wrong it's one of those, <clears throat> one of those teachings that you know, even if you think you're right you know you're right if you're letting your conceit get away with it get, uh, take a overwhelm your mind take over your thinking then you're wrong so you may have a an understanding of a higher point of Dhamma that seems logical and correct but if you attach to it so tightly that it leads you to argue or look down on another bhikkhu then you're wrong so it's one of those times when what can be right can be wrong even just an ordinary point of Vinaya some rule, maybe some minor rule if you hold to it to so tightly that it causes you to look down on another bhikkhu or have aversion for another bhikkhu then even though it's your, your view is correct you understand what is the rule and how to keep it and you might think that they don't keep it 
if it gives rise to conceit or anger or attachment to a view that leads to conflict, disagreement, then you're wrong. And this is how the Dhamma works. We have to learn how to turn our attention back, reflect back on ourselves the whole time. And Lumpur Chah said, you know, in the beginning this is probably the best place to look. Your attachment to conceit, to views. Mixed with craving, it's the, the cause of papancha, all the mental proliferation that we experience. Our views about what is right, what is wrong, what is best for me, what is worse for me. The sense of I am, who I am. You know, often in a monastery it will be around our perceived status. I'm a, a new Anagarika or I'm an old Anagarika. I've been here many months now. I know, know what I'm doing. Or I'm a novice or I'm a new monk or I'm an older monk. We're constantly <clears throat> assessing ourselves and attaching to a, identifying with a self-view and then often that's leading us to compare with others better than, worse than, same as. And this is what feeds so much of our mental proliferation. Sometimes it can be directed towards the laity, so as a bhikkhu we may be looking down from a place of conceit on the laity and they don't keep the sila as well as I do they don't meditate as much as I do they don't know the Dhamma as much as I do even though these are the people who support us and allow us to practice it can happen the conceit can come that these are areas we have to keep looking at reflecting back on our behavior I mean, the Buddha's already pointed out where the danger lies it's up, up to us to learn from our experience, see how it manifests, see how it comes out, and see how it feeds you know, the mental proliferation, which is much of the time is our particular experience of suffering. <clears throat> it's the obstacle to the mind calming down into samadhi. It's the obstacle to seeing with clarity the Four Noble Truths or seeing anicca dukkha anatta in our experience. It's just the endless proliferation. So sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, you know, do I like this proliferation, this suffering? Do I like it? Is it good for me? Do I want more of it? And you have a discussion with yourself and once you're clear that it's something to be abandoned and then you go back to the root causes and you start learning where you may be over-attaching or attaching too tightly to particular views and opinions on things or to the conceit of who you think you are, the sense of self that comes up just in daily life. And that's where you can start cutting it off. Our aim is to bring the mind back to the present moment, establish mindfulness over and over again so that we can reflect clearly and see clearly, particularly in the causes of suffering in our own minds. Samadhi is the continuous presence of sati. So as we keep establishing 
mindfulness, sati in the present moment, reducing this habit of mental proliferation, then there's a chance for the mind to calm down, the sense of serenity, coolness, calm arises. In the beginning we practice it, you know, particularly with our sila, just learning not to express every opinion, every view, particularly if it leads to conflict. You may hold an opinion, but you also don't have to hold so tightly that you have to keep telling everyone else about it or arguing with others. So you learn that, you know, not to argue over everything. You learn how to listen, how to communicate well, how to accept other people's point of view as well. You learn how to help out, do one particular, one's share of the chores and the work, support each other in that way, help out when we chant, to do one, one can practice helping out with the chanting, chanting loud enough to support the others. You notice if everybody chants loudly, then if someone forgets the chant, they're quickly reminded because of the words of other people around them. In every aspect of our life, there's an opportunity to contribute, participate, and to set aside preferences and so on. Practice of helping out, being kind, supportive, forgiving. This is, you might say, the practice of sila in practice in, in daily life in the monastery. If we put effort into that, then it's a strong foundation, it's a cause for the mind to calm down, be more cool, more serene, and samadhi is more attainable. You know, every time we have a formal ceremony where we give the precepts, we say, silena sukatingyanti, silena boka sampada, silena nibutingyanti. And there's a cause, the sila is a cause and there's results that come from practicing it. Watching what we say, what we do, so that we don't harm others intentionally. It gives rise to a sense of inner happiness, freedom from regret. It supports the other wholesome qualities of our practice. And we don't have a lot of wealth, but we have inner wealth. And we have knowledge, we have experience, we have kindness, compassion, <clears throat> hiriyotapa, and so on. All the different qualities that we develop in our practice are like our inner spiritual wealth. Keeping the sila preserves that. And sila in a nibutinganti, it's a cause for nibbana. Nibbana means the coolness of the mind, the extinction of the kilesas, which causes suffering. So the more effort we put into the sila, the more it helps to cool the mind. And it's a <clears throat> supportive condition for the arising of samadhi. Then as we practice meditation, sitting and walking, putting effort into that, <clears throat> the more we have the chance to experience states of calm, whatever level we can attain, whether it's momentary or much deeper, more profound, States of calm. Doesn't matter, we just do what we can, experience what we can.
states of calm, serenity, stability of mind are the cause for insight to arise. When you practice sila and you develop samadhi, you have such a sense of well-being and inner happiness, then the mind can really turn to observe anicca dukkha anatta. And this feeds back to you know, helping to deal with the attachment to views, opinions, the conceit of I. Because when you have a sense of well-being, you can really see that the conceit of I is a delusion. We attach to our bodies, feelings, thoughts, memories, perceptions, sense consciousness with the sense of I. But as your mind becomes calm, the sense of well-being you know, supports the ability to just look more deeply at our experience and see the illusion of I. And it's really something that we add on and it's the cause of suffering. The longer, the, the, the more firmly we attach to it, the more we suffer. And when we can see through it, the sense of I, and see this body is not a self. It's composed of four elements. It's something that goes according to nature. It's not under our control. Feeling the same. Pleasant, unpleasant neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Feeling arises and passes away according to causes and conditions. Again, there's no I in that. When we have the sense of calm, well-being from the practice of samadhi, then the mind can really look at that, investigate, and see form, feeling, perceptions. They're all impermanent. What's impermanent cannot be a lasting self. And the more we do this, the more we maintain a sense of evenness of mind, equanimity, maintaining the mind in the middle, neither grasping at or pushing away our experience. This is the way we can progress in the Dhamma developing sati in all postures and neither delighting in or averse to the world as we practice. We're learning to keep the mind in the middle, becoming more familiar with the state of equanimity towards different conditions, different experiences. Somebody was asking to, today whether, you know, where, where's the best place to practice? Is it at home where you can kind of control things and do it your own way? Or in a monastery where you actually have to give up and mix with other people? And they thought maybe that practicing in a monastery was harder. But perhaps they were overlooking some of the the benefits of monastic living. When you live with other people who are dedicated to keeping sila, to practicing kindness, forgiveness, developing sati, developing wisdom, 
You know, these are very subtle but very profound qualities that are often lacking in the lay life, or at least harder to find. So you may have your independence when you have a home and you can arrange things according to your desires and attachments. But it's very difficult to sustain a practice at home because of the tendency to get distracted, attached to comfort, influenced by other people around who aren't practicing maybe. It's not impossible, but maybe it's more challenging. Whereas the monastery, even though at first it can seem challenging, because you have to learn new things, you have to give up certain comforts and keep rules that require discipline and effort. But as you get used to it, you probably appreciate very quickly how it's so supportive for the practice. Simplicity is not easy at first, but in the long run, once you get used to it, simplicity is a great quality, being content with what you have. Knowing how to be content with what you have is such a valuable quality in this day and age because most people are not content with what they have and they don't know how to find contentment. And we learn to become familiar with simplicity and we use it almost like a tool. You get to use it like a skill. Living in simple accommodation, simple clothing, we have our robes, we have our arms, food, one meal a day, which we don't order, we don't have a menu or some plan, we just accept what comes. We have medicines for when we're sick. We don't have a lot of possessions, we don't need a lot of things to keep us happy. If you find happiness in the Dhamma, then you really don't need anything at all. Just to reflect on the Dhamma, or maybe to listen to or read to the Dhamma sometimes. But in the end, just listening to the Dhamma through your own heart is the highest happiness. And everything else takes second place. So say material, comfort, and all the pleasant and exciting, interesting experiences the world may have to offer they all come in second when you're comparing with the, you know, the peace of the Dhamma and the understanding and the peace that comes from that. But it does take some time maybe to appreciate this. You know, at first the monastic life can seem daunting or a challenge, but over time that can change and you get used to it, you appreciate it then maybe the thought of lay life becomes the challenge. The thought of living with people with different standards of sila, different kinds of behavior, all the different views and opinions in the world, you know, all embracing netta views. You have to go and mix with and deal with. In the history of the Buddha's life, you know, there's one major bust up the monks of Kosambi, but actually many, many instances of monks living together peacefully, harmoniously. But in the lay life, the history of lay people is basically one long bust up over another, whether it's you know, on the level of families, couples, colleagues at work, 
countries between each other. This endless conflict, trying to repair damage, creating more damage, and on it goes. Whereas the Sangha life is not like that. It's endless, generally it's endless harmony, support. That doesn't change, the flavor hasn't changed. Say in my lifetime as a monk, it hasn't changed. It doesn't change between countries, whether you're in Thailand, Australia, UK, America, you know, monasteries around the world have a similar flavor wherever you go. This is something that's very special, very rare in the world. Probably a lot of people in the world never have any idea of it. They don't have much exposure to Buddhist monasticism. But we have, we're fortunate to have come into the Sangha, so it's something to, from time to time, you just stop and just appreciate what a good lifestyle this is and what benefit it brings us and everyone else. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight and we can carry on meditating tonight is one prayer so we'll be staying up late